Hello, and thank you for listening to the Teaching Math Teaching Podcast. The Teaching Math Teaching Podcast is sponsored by the Association of Mathematics Teacher Educators. Your hosts are Ava Thenheiser, myself, Dusty Jones, and Joel Amadon. Today, we're talking to Don Berg, who is the Executive Director of Deeper Learning Advocates, which is on a mission to embed the psychology of learning in K-12 policy so that policy stops undermining learning. We will discuss the relationship between attitude and learning, deeper learning, and about humanizing K-12 schools for deeper learning. We're excited to speak with Don today. We're hoping that teachers and teacher educators in any setting will learn something from listening to this podcast. Welcome, Don. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So let's just jump into our first question. Can you talk a little bit about what you do? My path in education and what I'm doing right now is... As you said, the mission of the organization, Deeper Learning Advocates, which is the nonprofit side of what I do, is really about how can we shift policy. My, my expertise is in motivation and education, and I studied some schools, and you know, it's a really fascinating topic. But what I find is that the challenges are not at the necessarily at the teacher level. They're actually at the, the level of policy and kind of what the, the hidden curriculum that teachers inherit when they get the job. There's ways that we do school, ways that schools are managed that inhibit the learning. And so we want to remove those barriers and help the school, schools at a policy level understand that there's a role to play, that they, they play it about how teachers and students are motivated, and that that affects the learning in a fundamental way. What I'm doing is getting the, the psychology out there into the world, and then working on understanding how that actually is affected also by policy. So that's, that's the leading edge of what I'm doing is the policy side. Could you give us an example of what you mean by, say, hidden curriculum and those things so we can wrap our heads around that? Yeah, yeah. So a hidden curriculum, people are probably familiar with the term somewhat. It's kind of those things that aren't said, you know, like you have a curriculum and it might be in this case math, but, but there's also how is the room arranged? How is the time schedule done? Those kinds of things actually affect, they're not things that you're necessarily thinking about every day, but they're things that have some effect. And what I find in the motivation sphere is that you need to look at things like how are conflicts handled? How are decisions made? Who's making the decision? It can be very important for the students to make some decisions and the teacher to make others. Even from administrative point of view, what are the decisions that teachers are making? Are they making curricular decisions or are they just making implementation decisions and instructional decisions? So. Could you give an example of what kinds of decisions you think students should or could be making? There's a vast range there because my background is also in, I homeschooled other people's kids for about five years and have been involved in the democratic education movements. And so on the radical side, and I would consider my roots to be fairly radical in an educational sense, is they give the kids a lot of decision-making power, like making day-to-day choices about what to learn and how to learn it. More traditional teachers don't have that freedom. They are in a different set of constraints, and it's not a bad thing, but they need to be clear about what are the decisions we can make. So if you're presenting particular information, what are some choices that the kids can make? Are there you know, ways that you can, at a small level, pick amongst different ways of presenting their learning, picking different ways to approach a subject. As I'm listening to you, I'm envisioning when you said pick how they present, so potentially 
in a poster versus verbal versus, mm -hmm. is that the kind of level you're thinking? That's one level, yes, definitely. And are there ways that you can, the more decisions they can make and learn about the consequences of their decisions, then they're going to be, have a stronger learning experience. Part of that also depends on the skill level of the students you have. Skill level in the sense of like, do they know how to make a reasonable choice about that particular aspect of learning? It's tricky if your university is going to be different than high school that's going to be different from middle or elementary. So, so that's an important thing to take into account is, okay, what degree of decision-making are they, can they take on? And surprise yours, you know, stretch and figure it out, test the limits, and then back off when you've given them too much. <laughs> so, Don, one of the things that I've seen in, I guess, at different levels of schooling, first at the elementary levels, but then also up into high school and at the university level, is this idea of a, a choice board or a menu of options where, mm -hmm. is that the sort of thing you're talking about where students, you know, need to accomplish something and the teacher says, well, here's a list of seven things, I need you to do two of them. Is that mm -hmm. the sort of choice? Yeah, that's, that a, great, that's a great way to structure it so that they're supported in understanding there's a, an acceptable range, there's, you know, there's goals that we need to achieve. Those are the kinds of supports that really help. In fact, there's a, um, there are certain democratic type schools that, that just do that on a larger scale. Like they literally have a choice board at the front of the room and they say, what are we going to do today? And they make okay. decisions about the kids themselves can offer things and say, well, I want to learn about this and anybody who wants to join me can. There's big versions of that, but even if you're scaling it down and saying, okay, here's the five or six topics that we can, uh, are under the lessons for the week, and how do you want to approach them today? You know, make choices as you go. So there's many ways to organize it, but enabling them to make decisions and is a valuable part of it, definitely. That makes me think about the whole concept of least restrictive environment, right? Mm -hmm. You know, you're thinking about that from a... We a lot of times hear that within our special education, but I like to think of that overall, just how are we, you can't have a least restrictive environment if your environment is so restrictive that kids are not allowed to make choices, right? So how do you keep right. widening out and, and removing restrictions? I mean, this is a very simple example, but you know, maybe it's, it falls in line with what you're talking about. It's a, a math teacher that I was observing is actually my son's math teacher mm. who had just a bunch of different kids in this classroom with different levels of behavior. And I just, it felt like the classroom was chaotic. Like people mm -hmm. were moving all around and stuff like that. People are on the floor, people are standing people. And then I look over at my son and he's perched like a bird on his chair in his desk. And I'm just like, how can she, you know, and I'm just, I'm getting kind of upset. Like this is not, you know, the kind of environment we, you know, that's it's distracting. But then yeah, I just look around, they're all looking at her. Mm -hmm. Right. They're all being attentive. They're all, they're all looking at her. They're all like in tune to what she's saying. Like she's trying to set up an activity and then it was go. And it's like, I don't care where you're working. That's like wherever this is what we're doing and work with each other, work on your own. It was like, she removed these research, even to the point where I, I don't really care if you're sitting on your bottom in the seat to my own son. Uh, but, right. but it was just like, what's important in this situation. Right. And to think about how do we give kids choices in, environments where a lot of times they're not given a lot of choices. And that's, exactly. I love what you're presenting. Yeah, and, and what you just pointed out was one of the kind of shifts in perspective that I think more people need to gain access to is that shift from what may be on the surface chaotic can be the very best learning environment when you can see that it's managed and, and that everyone's attending and engaged with the thing that's going on. Even if it, there's a lot of sound or a lot of motion, mm -hmm. which 
in the traditional system is, is sort of valued arbitrarily. It doesn't have inherent educational value to be quiet and still. Right. What has educational value is engagement. I often find, so I was in magnet programs and things growing up. So my schooling included, I both bounced in and out of a variety of sort of the smart kid programs. That's where I came from. And then as I've, the last decades of in education, I've encountered a variety of other kinds of the other side, like the special needs and things like that. And it's interesting because just about everything that goes on in the margins around special needs and accelerated learning and thing, you know, gifted and talented and stuff like that is exactly what everyone needs. Exactly. It's the least restrictive environment. Well, yeah. everybody needs that. It turns right. out. You know, they need enrichment. Well, it turns out everybody needs that. They need things they can focus on. Well, everybody needs that. And so it's a really interesting thing to understand like, oh, wait a minute. Uh, people, one of the trauma-informed is a new one that's come out in the last 10 years or so. And it's like, oh, okay. And so I started, I, I go to a lot of conferences. And so I go to a conference and I, oh, a workshop on it. Great. You know, and I, so I go and ask, start inquiring and saying, okay, this, what's the special thing, special sauce here that's, and I'm thinking about it from the motivational standpoint. And, and I'm looking for what is the thing that trauma brings into this that's unique from what regular humans, you know, everybody else who's not anybody who's not trauma, regular, that's actually unfair. But anyway, mm. you know, what the people who are not traumatized. And it turns out I can't find anything. Mm. They're saying that you need to provide an emotionally, psychologically supportive environment. Well, that's exactly what everyone needs. And so just because kids are able to put up with it better doesn't mean it's a healthier environment for them or a better learning environment for them. And so that's, a, you know, it's one of the interesting challenges is to, to realize that the things that are centrally needed are universal. Mm. There are some things you need to do differently for trauma, for gifted, uh, for uh, special needs. There are going to be things, but your baseline should be these fundamental universal psychological supports. And most of what turns out to be add-ons in the margins are those things. They're not actually adding on something unique to their condition. They're adding on the things that all humans actually need. And so it's ironic in that way. But that's a hard conversation to have with a lot of mainstream educators because they're frustrated by, you know, they know that in some ways, but they don't have the supports to actually implement. And that's the challenge. Could you talk a little bit about what you mean by deeper learning? Sure. So deeper learning, I mean, just on the face of it, there's an implication that there's something called shallower learning. And that's true. It's a distinction, shallower versus deeper. That's very old, but basically... The idea of shallow learning is that, well, you just do it by rote. Everybody's had the experience of, yeah, I, I studied for the thing and then I took the test and forgot about it 10 minutes later. That's the, an epitome of, of shallow learning. The more nef nefarious or, or bad aspect of shallow learning is that, for instance, in both math and science, but particularly science education, they became aware a long time ago that despite receiving instruction, kids, well, humans of any age, will not necessarily ha develop a deeper understanding of what they've, what they've, even if they learn the words that go with the particular idea, they might learn the language, they might be able to pass a, a fairly simple test that just has it in parrot language, that doesn't mean they understand it. And so deeper learning is what happens in, when you actually come to understand it, you have the conceptual 
understanding that then enables you to apply that. There's an aspect of shallow learning that's important to understand, and that's what I call faux achievement. So part of what is going on in schools is that we have a lot of examples where the kids go through the motions, they jump through the hoops, whatever you want to call it, and they get the rewards, but they have lacked the, the deeper understanding. So they get the grades, they get the diplomas, they go on to get degrees, but they still have fundamental misunderstandings. A great example of this was a film called Minds of Their Own. There was a second one 10 years later, I forget what it was called. Made, uh, so they interviewed recent graduates and faculty at MIT and Harvard and specifically gave them basic kind of challenges around or questions about like one was uh, why are there seasons and another one was you have a wire a battery and a bulb can you light up the bulb use just those three things and majority of people with advanced degrees in physics and sciences failed those tasks even though they're at the most elite institutions in the world and so what they realized was like even though they can parrot back all the things they need to pass a test they don't have fundamental understandings of the science itself. And that's faux achievement, fake achievement. They didn't actually master the subjects they were done. What they mastered was the testing procedures and the, and the grade getting process, but they still fundamentally have misunderstandings about how their field of specialty works. So what I'm focusing on is in deep for deeper learning is that there's actually from the psychological point of view, we understand how that comes about and it, the prerequisite before the content can be learned and the conceptual learning occurs is you need that motivation in place. You need them to be engaged and then they will have a more fundamentally productive learning experience. That, uh, that faux achievement mm-hmm. idea, it reminds me, this is just an old classic article. It's about uh, Benny's thinking with IPI. If, if any of you ever dusty, Remember, it's in that yeah. Classics of Math Education Research book. It's a brown book. Anyway, yeah, yeah. it talks about Benny. Benny was, uh, he was taking this individualized, it was like basically a teacher-proof curriculum mm-hmm. where you process through it through just taking assessments. And this uh, researcher looked at him as just basically looked at one student who has identified this kid's successful. This kid is achieving, right? Mm-hmm. And the, the researcher just then interviewed him and he had all of these fantastically articulated ideas about how to add fractions and do basic <laughs> calculations and things. And they were just wildly off. Mm-hmm. I mean, just, and, but the, the whole thing was set up for like not to be interfered with, like you give them the test and, the, and like, so he has shown this achievement and, but yet the, the conceptual understanding was just not there. And it's just right. like, you think like how, you know, things are still set up in some of those ways where, you know, they might be, progressing through like you're saying with this like faux achievement sort of thing where yep. you're seeing that and it's like how do we really get at this idea of deep learning and loving this love loving this talk yeah yeah and, and one of the you know particularly in mathematics there's a, a big difference between the procedural learning and mm-hmm. the conceptual learning yeah is if you're and, and this is one of the you know kind of worries i have about like uh, systems like uh, uh, Khan Academy is I don't know. I haven't evaluated Khan Academy in any meaningful way, but, but the concern is that, that they might just set up uh, gameable procedures. I mean, they, they literally are gamifying mathematics. That's part of their mm-hmm. way yeah. they're trying to do it. But it's like, okay, but is the game actually leading to understanding or is the game leading to 
you know, a procedure that they don't know how to apply in meaningful contexts. And that's one of the, the important parts of conceptual learning is not just to have a procedure, but to know, oh, which procedure is appropriate now? Right. And, and then down the road, and now a different procedure is needed. But to make that judgment, to make that decision of this is the procedure I should do now is a really hard thing to wrap your mind around. And that's partly why you can't just, you know, flow through mathematics in, in a simple way is like they're connected to so many things and applications that if you don't have a sense of where this lies, you'll never apply it, <laughs> except in, in the very narrow circumstances in which you first encountered it. It's called uh, context-sensitive learning, is if there's a particular way, like every time I've ever seen, say, you know, as a random example, you know, the Pythagorean theorem, it has one form, and it only has that one form, and then I only see it when it's presented in a certain kind of problem, then that's the only association I have for the whole thing. It, it's a terribly useful thing across many contexts. Mm-hmm. But if I don't realize that, then I have this one way of using it, then that's not mathematical understanding. You know, that's not the kind of uh, learning that we need. We need somebody who can take it and then, then learn about, oh, what are some different ways that this can look, what are some ways we can use it, and some ways that maybe you know, encountering a unique problem, oh, maybe that's a tool I could use in this context. And those are, you know, it's actually fiendishly difficult. And to build on that, I think one step further is we really want to make sure that kids and humans, I like how you're talking about that everybody is able to understand the world around them. And especially right now where the news is full of numbers, like 1 million Mm -hmm. cases and, you know, so many percent of the population that we can listen to these statements and understand what they mean rather than just hear a bunch of numbers and think, oh, that Mm -hmm. sounds big or that sounds small. Right, right. Some great work on understanding, mathematical understanding in a public context. I'm not remembering their names, but uh, Daniel Kahneman and his partner Tversky, and then there's people who's followed up on their work. And there's a particular person whose name is also escaping me at the moment. But really looking at the particular example I remember from the book I read was looking at when a doctor says, here's your chances, you know, it's, it's a devastating moment if, you know, you're being given some chance of living or dying. And it turns out most people, even the doctors, don't understand what that means. They aren't, they're telling these people these dire prognoses without an understanding of what they actually, how that actually should be processed or understood by that person, because the doctors themselves don't understand it. So yeah, it's a very, it can be a very uh, meaningful issue. Yeah, I had an experience like that too, where I ended up getting in an argument with a doctor when the doctor told me something about, oh, this increases your chances by 50%. But it turned out it was 50% of like 10%, which uh, in the end makes it 5%, which wasn't worth all the negative side effects that Mm -hmm. initially sounded like it might be worth it. Mm -hmm. Anyway, let's um, wrap up this podcast with just some thoughts about if you are a teacher or a math teacher educator right now, what are one or two things that you could take away from this podcast that you might be able to start thinking about or start implementing? 
the question is difficult if it's when it's broadly stated like that, because, because one of the things like context sensitive learning is like, well, I don't know enough about your context to be able to say specifically. However, mm-hmm. the one thing that I would say is really crucial to any teacher is understand your students experience of your teaching and don't make the mistake of assuming that they can necessarily articulate it well or say it in a way that is easy to understand. Inquire about how that work, but then make it an open conversation. That needs to be a regular practice of like, oh, what did you think of that? How did that work? If you don't understand their experience, and, and I don't mean in, in the sense of like they should be giving you feedback on how you're teaching. What I mean is like understand what motivates them, what, what is it that they think they want. They may not always be right, but they can at least start to say how that's going for them. One of the interesting things about motivation research is that most of the time you can ask people about their motivation and they'll probably have a pretty good idea of what's motivating. Now there's exceptions to that, but by that, I mean like, are they doing it because they're guilty that they would not please their parents or that they would be ashamed of not getting the good grade or, you know, that's not the right kind of motivation. When are they interested? What is it that captures their curiosity or gets them, them excited is if you can start to have that conversation where you can talk about your own motivation because motivation is contagious. It's something where even if they don't fully understand your motivate or the, what your motivation is, whatever motivation you bring into the situation is going to spread. So the more that you can tap into your own excitements, enthusiasm, curiosities, and engagement, the better off you're going to be. But also, if you're not in those places, if you're in like, hey, I got to do this, it's not my favorite thing, be honest about that. And if it's something you got to get through, if you can help tap into their interests and curiosities and excitements about that subject that you may not be excited about, it's contagious. You can catch it from them and say, oh, that's an interesting aspect. Let's explore that further. So really understanding what I would say is the most practical thing to do is reflect on your own motivation and be honest about it. And then try to figure out what the experience of your students are in terms of motivation and engagement. Figure out and and hone what is it that excites them, what gets them interested and engaged, and do your best to be honest about there are some things that are not always, you don't have the best motivation for it, but you still got to do it. So just be honest about that and see if there's ways you can maybe bump it up a little bit and make it find ways to make it more engaging or more interesting. And I want to give a shout out here to Mandy Jansen's book, Motivation Matters and Interest Counts, that has some practical teacher tools in there. And then I think, Don, you also wrote some books. Did you want to share briefly about those? Yeah. So my books are in, you know, really talking about the bigger picture. But my latest book is called Unfailing Schools. What's Joy got to do with it? unfailing in both that sort of positive like schools that are unfailing and how to get there, but also like how do we get away from this image of schools as failing institutions? Mostly they're not. And so the challenge is is understanding how we can get the larger level to be consistent with the psychology. That's what, and you know, I have three or four books out and you can find them at attitutor.com, which is att. I-T-U-T-O-R, as an attitude tutor.org or .com. And we will link that site. Joel and Dusty, did you guys have any closing questions? 
comments? I think you just gave us a lot to think about. I know I've got many notes, and so I'm looking forward to checking out uh, the books and also just to probably re-listen to this podcast and, and think about a few things again. Sure, yeah. And I appreciated how you said it's difficult to think, to give recommendations or talk at a large scale. In my own mind, I thought, well, what class am I teaching next? Mm. And I've got a class I'm teaching starting July 1st that's going to be fully online with some prospective middle school teachers learning about statistics. And I thought, okay, let me try to, to nail down some of these ideas with that. So I know some of my students already, so that I feel like I have a leg up on that, but I want to try to reach out to them and try to get to know what interests them and what they think motivates them and then see if I can, you know, try to whip up something special mm-hmm. <laughs> that, cool. that, that cool. works with that. Yeah, exactly. And just having the humility to real to approach it with the curiosity of I don't know enough about you. And you can never know enough about your students, but to have that humility to say, I need to learn more, I think is an important attitude to bring as well. Cool. Absolutely. Well, thank you, Don, so much for joining us. My pleasure. Indeed. Thank you again for listening to the Teaching Math Teaching Podcast. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast. We hope that you are able to implement something that you just heard and take an opportunity to interact with other math teacher educators.